Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hoth. And each week on The Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Sean Kelly Quinn. Sean is a mental conditioning consultant with elite experience from some of the US's top performance training venues. A graduate of the University of California, Davis, in human development, Sean also earned his his master's degree in sports psychology from JFK University. He is a certified consultant with the Association for Applied Sports Psychology and has obtained thousands of hours working with clients from diverse backgrounds, including professionals in baseball, football, basketball, soccer, tennis, and the golf world, as well as executives from a variety of top corporations. After completing his studies, Sean gained valuable experience in the performance space at the IMG Academy in Florida and also the Exos in Phoenix, Arizona, working as a mental conditioning consultant for some of the U.S.'s top youth, amateur and professional athletes. So welcome on to the show, Sean. James, thanks for having me today. I'm uh, oh, looking forward to it. The pleasure has been all mine. So I'll give some context to the, the, the listeners. And obviously, I will talk a little bit less because I've got a sore throat and people probably appreciate it. they want to hear you more than me. Uh, obviously, we, you and I had a conversation uh, as a pre-interview because you wanted to see if, see if it would be a good fit. And we had a three-hour conversation that obviously nobody will hear. Uh, but obviously, I wanted to get you back on for sure and share your experiences and obviously your experience with working with every level uh, uh athlete yeah no you know I, I, we had a great conversation and uh you know i, I look forward to, to having another one here and then talk about kind of this elite performance and uh you know how we can kind of all of us can kind of get better especially during this day and age and what's going on throughout the world and obviously straight off the bat sean why did you want to get into obviously performance sport or more, more specifically, like psycho sports psychology within performance sport. I think I've always had a passion just to, to help people, and so um, just kind of age-old question: why people do what they do is, is something that's always kind of fascinated me. Um, you know, I don't think it's ever going to be something that'll be answered. Um, you know, there's genetics behind it, there's environment behind it, but uh, you know, why some athletes kind of thrive, and why some just kind of seem to not kind of get over that cusp. So, kind of looking at that, um, you know. Found out there was a there was a there was actually a profession in uh, sports psychology and then helping uh, athletes deal with pressure. But even on top of that, um, it, it's a lot of life skills too. So uh, helping people in general uh, get better. And so I kind of uh, it, it was a kind of a, a match that 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 worked out well and and it really kind of you know had a few doors open, which you know some lucky opportunities. Uh, came across a, a few people and have some great mentors that have come across my way throughout my life. Uh, but also, you know, meeting Trevor Maud and, and working with Trevor, um, you know, for the last six years has, has really helped me, um, you know, just kind of see, you know, what happens in the professional space. And I've been fortunate enough to, to you know, uh, 
develop a, a practice myself where I have a lot of professional athletes across the board. But, um, you know, it's, it's always interesting to see what makes them tick and, and what they do. But also, you know, they're human beings just like we all are. Um, and, and so um, emotions, um, problems, you know, family situations, um, they have it just like we all do. And so helping them kind of navigate the seas too. So, you know, when it, when it can get rough, um, how they get through it, but also, uh, you know, when, when they're, when they're doing well and, and they, they're, they're thriving, uh, what's leading to that success. And you, you talked about obviously developing confidence through experience. And that, that's actually interesting to me because I've never thought of it from that basis because all, always people will ask me and I'll use this interview, uh, as the more for the evidence, uh, do athletes struggle with confidence? I was like, no, it's more than probably borderline arrogance. It's more maybe what they are struggle with is like self belief. And obviously you talked about self confidence, uh, self positive talk. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you need to develop confidence, confidence through experience? So do you, you talk, do you think it's more of, of it's a learned behavior than a taught behavior? It's a little bit of both. Um, I think we have to become aware, right? And so if we can become aware of the situations, be careful, be aware of what happens, how, how we respond to certain situations, um, then we can make adjustments. And so, um, once we see how, you know, what happens, um, in a certain event, certain scenario, um, we say, Hey, this works or Hey, this maybe didn't work quite as well. Here's the adjustments I need to make. And so, you know, I would say there's, there's something to having a, a past experience in a certain moment, but also, um, you kind of know what to expect, um, rather than having the fear of the unknown, maybe take over where, um, it may be a new sporting venue. It may be a, a hostile situation where you're, you're in a, a you're playing against a, a rival team in an environment you haven't been to. So you don't know what to expect. And so your mind can wander. Um, you know, if I know what to expect when I go into a stadium or against a certain, you know, opponent, um, I can plan for that. Um, and I can prepare my mind for that too. But, you know, I think a lot of times we can rely back on certain situations that might be similar if it is something that's new um, so that we can prepare ourselves, but also knowing that, you know, we're doing all the right things to get us in the situation to, to, to thrive. Um, so, um, you know, if it is a, a, an Olympic moment, right, where it's your first time going to the Olympics, for instance, um, you know, what have I done for the, the previous three and a half years to get myself in this position to be here? Um, you know, my experience through training, um, you know, what I've done each day to kind of prepare myself and then ultimately leading to, to the big event, but also normalizing it in a way where we can sit there and say, Hey, look, you know, the hardest part was the last three and a half years of, of getting myself to this point to be here. Now that I'm here, let's kind of show off my exploits. Let's show off what I've done, uh, to, to be able to earn the spot to be in the Olympics, um, as opposed to, uh, looking back and saying, I have to do well, I must do well. And, and, and changing the mindset that, that, you know, I, I must perform as opposed to let's go out there and do what I do and let's, let's do it well. The same way I've been doing it for the last three and a half years or, or the rest of my, you know, my life leading up to it um, as well. And you talk about like uncertainty there, Sean, do you think, Oh, I, 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 won't, I won't put assumptions in here. I, I'll ask you point blank. You as a coach, and we were talking before we started recording that, you and I both have a, a shared uh, love of Manchester United. Mm-hmm. Have you said to your clients to look to sport in Europe as a model to prepare for, obviously, their uncertainty to go back to their seasons? 
or have you kind of looked at it more as an ad hoc uh, looking at case by case? You know, it's interesting because it is a little bit different in the States than it is in Europe, um, just with case numbers, management, how things are going. And so um, I think you can certainly take a look and, and just say, hey, look, you know, look what's going on in Europe. They're able to safely and successfully kind of, you know, have a season and run through it. But also knowing that, you know, um, you know, our numbers are still rising. Um, you know, we haven't really got a grip on what's going on. Um, here and so um, understand that in a controlled environment it's going to help you be safer but you know we still have to be smart Um, and so making sure that we're making the right decisions um, you know we're not putting ourselves or our teammates in jeopardy by um, you going out in public and and and, you know trying to um, uh, you know not adhere to maybe some of the rules that that some of the leagues are doing and I think you're seeing it a little bit in Major League Baseball right now um, where a couple of teams, you know, were maybe a little bit laxed after uh, three weeks of, of a quarantine and the season has started up and now you're seeing, um, you know, whole teams kind of shut down for, you know, a week, 10 days at a time, which ultimately doesn't just affect that one team, but affects the team they have to play. And so collectively as a whole, I think, you know, in order to make sure that the league, you know, continues, um, you have to be able to kind of not just think about yourself, but think about the rest of the people that are playing as well um, so that you can make this a reality as opposed to, um, you know, going back to where it was in March and, you know, having cancellation of everything. And, you know, and not only just the not, not being able to play, but, you know, there's real monetary losses there for um, a lot of the players and, you know, well, one guy may be set because he has a um, a contract, you know, for that's guaranteed for six years. There might be another guy who's just coming up, who you know maybe a rookie or, or you know needs that money um, to survive. And you know they're doing everything they can to 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 get by, but you know you're putting them at risk because you're making risky decisions. So really, I think it's 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 being selfless rather than selfish. And so having a conversation built around that. And obviously, we 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 discussed about you know with collegiate sport, uh, collegiate football more specifically when we talk about collegiate sport. Going back, do you think the Ivy League, by their stance to cancel, I think it was every sport in the fall and the winter, has made the right decision when it comes to obviously uh, collegiate sport. Yeah, you know, I I think it's interesting. I certainly do, and, and you know, I think. Uh, you know, kind of looking at that, um, they obviously weighed their pros and cons. Um, you know, saw what was what was safe, safest in their minds um, for their students. Um, you know, and a lot of times, you know, well, the Ivy League in general, um, most universities there don't give out scholarships. Um, they're you know academic oriented, and you know, obviously they have tremendous pedigree um, with you know the students that that go through those those doors. But uh, from what I understand, a, a lot of the universities um, in the Ivy League are, are all going uh, virtual anyways. So um, not a lot of students on campus. And so for them, um, I think that they're, you know, trying to, you know, kind of adhere to their values and, and what they believe and then saying that, hey, look, you know, we're not going to try and put our, uh, put our students at risk um, to, to attain this. And so um, I think, you know, for each university, it's a little bit different, each conference. Um, you know, is a little bit different in sport. And so, you know, I think they're right now they're, you know, obviously the, 
you know, the kids want to play if, if, if it's safe. Um, but you know, how, how do we make it safe so that, um, when you have a hundred kids on one, one side of, of, of the stadium and you have other kids on another and they're going to battle, um, that, you know, they're not, um, you know, passing it on to others. And so, you know, testing, um, you know, how do you, how do you quarantine a hundred, you know, college football students? Um, you know, um, and so it, it's going to be an interesting case study for sure. So, um, you know, I, I hope for, for everyone's sake that, you know, health and, and everything else that they do it right. Uh, because, you know, that's, you know, a lot of times, you know, also looking at their amateurs, um, they're not getting paid either. So, um, what they're getting paid is, is, is room and board, but also some experience and, you know, um, they're being developed, but hopefully, uh, you know, they're being developed in a way where, uh, it's safe as opposed to putting themselves at risk or, or putting their families at risk. Yeah. Well, and I think what, what, what we also alluded to, they're also young men. So they're going to make obviously rash decisions. Some are going to be more mature than others. Uh, and ultimately that is a course of life. You make you learn from your mistakes uh, and that's very much experience. But obviously would you talk about self, selflessness? It's a difficult word to say it's going to be very difficult for, for, for them because ultimately depending on what conference they come from. Yeah. We'll use the SEC because generally football speaking, it is the, the power conference. Uh, no yep. disrespect to anybody uh, who's in a different school in a different conference. Um, but just for, for this example, mm-hmm. I'll use a university of Alabama. They've gone yep. to that school to be like the stepping stone to make the NFL so that they, I think I did watch, uh, a video on, on LinkedIn, uh, last week about they were actually utilizing technology and actually making these players develop in a different way and be a bit more, I won't say street smart, but be more game aware because they can learn more about the system, their position and be almost like a professional, uh, and using this time of, downtime to become better so okay i i see and this is only my opinion my own opinion that's probably gonna make them more of a juggernaut going forward yeah you know and that's and that's you you and i had a conversation before talking about adjusting and adapting um to certain situations and and i think that's that's where alabama um is certainly ahead of the curve where um they've been able to uh, adjust and adapt uh to certain situations that you know, some may say it's adverse, um, or hey, you know, we're not going to go develop, but finding a way um, to develop and to adjust to the time so that they're still, um, you know, on the cutting edge as opposed to falling behind the times. And I think, you know, uh, you mentioned um, just you know them being kids, and um, you know, it's it's a younger audience certainly. Um, you have nineteen-year-olds, you have eighteen-year-olds, um, some schools even seventeen-year-olds. Um, you know, just coming out of high school. Um, going to school, you, you know, kids as old as 23, 24, maybe some graduate students, um, you know, 25, but, um, you know, certainly different from, from professional leagues. And, um, if the professional league's struggling with it, you know, how's it going to be for the collegiate, uh, football? And so I think that starts with your structure as well. And, and really, um, you know, it starts from the top. So, um, you know, you have to be able to have some sort of, um, you know, uh, just guidelines. Um, some sort of enforcement with, 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 you know, your, your head coach, your coaches, um, so that, um, you know, guys understand, Hey, this is real. And, 
And if we don't adhere to it, um, we won't be out here playing. And so, and then ultimately we'll, we'll affect their draft stock for the next year because um, they're not getting the opportunities to go out there and play. And, you know, um, guys aren't able to see them um, or see them develop. So they may not take a risk on drafting a, a kid that hasn't played in a year or um, who's only kind of known by potential alone, but not, um, you know, putting on tape or, or doing anything, um, you know, against a, against an opponent. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting kind of conundrum, but um, ultimately it goes back to, you know, that selflessness, um, again, as opposed to being selfish. And obviously we talked about this previously, Sean, you know, that, that the, the adversity of going into um, a hostile environment of, I don't know, I use LSU's Death Valley, uh, to, to just for example, or like, or, or Clemson's, um, I can't think of the name of it. I apologize to the people from that Clemson's university. Death Valley, Clemson's Death Valley as well. They uh, both and, have the same. Going into same. Some, some of those hostile yep. environments. Do you think if they are to play and COVID has an impact on more, I'll call it the stadium experience of playing in front of hostile uh, um, crowds as they are because then, this is where probably the American supports differ from Europeans. You're not going to have as many traveling support. Do you think it's going to be weird for those athletes because ultimately they've never experienced it? Well, if they're yeah. playing in small, small high school arenas, okay, mm-hmm. the, the, except probably the ones playing in Texas and things like that, who play in. Premier League style uh, stadiums yeah. uh, at a high school level. Do you think if they were to adopt, be it I use the 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 Premier League's model because obviously France is playing in front of crowds. Mm-hmm. Do you think those athletes, some of them, going to struggle because ultimately they 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 use that cue to really get them going? Definitely, I had this conversation uh, literally probably you know two and a half weeks ago with a major league baseball player um, just talking about playing in an empty stadium. And we really talked about, you know, really kind of, um, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about not worrying about the extra, you know, external factors that we can't control, whether it's crowd noise, um, where you're at um, situationally, what's happening. Um, you know, we have to go out there and kind of, you know, put blinders on and go out and do what we need to do. And so, um, with that being said, it's no, now it's more, you know, it, it's enhanced where that's, that's it. You know, there's no noise. There's, there's nothing now they're doing, um, artificial noise. I've been seeing what's, you know, the kind of positive effects of, of just, I think it's more viewership, but, um, it, of the Premier League and, and some of the, the, the European, uh, leagues. But, um, looking at that, it's, it's yeah, definitely real because, um, yeah, they have to get to a certain spot, um, to be able to kind of, you know, get themselves prepared. And they've been able to do that and use noise as a, as a way to, to get them there. And, you know, lack of that and having a void, they have to kind of channel it somewhere else, um, to be able to kind of get them ready. But, um, you know, from a, from a stadium standpoint, um, I think it loses a little bit of edge for some of these other teams where if you're looking at, you know, going into a place, a hostile environment like LSU or, or Clemson or, you know, some of these major universities, um, where you're hearing a lot of kind of crowd noise and you knowing that you're the opponent. Um, and I think it kind of maybe kind of, you know, it, it doesn't equal the playing field as far as competition wise, but as far as having that, um, you know, as far as potential and what the athletes they may have, but it, 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 it 
it decreases um, an external variable that may be in your favor being a home team and having that home team advantage by having that lack of noise, having that lack of crowd noise and, and, and having a, a team, an opposing team coming in there and being fearful of, of a threat that they might have viewed, you know, as the noise, as the sound um, that's no longer there. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see that come about, um, you know, in kind of college football, um, if we have it, um, just because I think that that is a, uh, you know, that is a variable that has come into play, but, you know, certainly as far as the individual athlete, um, you know, we, we, we call it the, the zone of optimal functioning and that's where we kind of operate the best as an athlete. Um, you know, when, when you go out there to try and perform a lot of times, you know, um, sound is something that enhances and gets them to a certain area where they say, Hey, it's, it's game time. It's ready to go. Um, so that's where they're having to fill that void to get them to this spot where they can kind of operate at a high level. Um, and so, you know, what are they doing? Everyone's a little bit different, but what are they doing to, to kind of, uh, fill that void and to, to, to still be able to get to where they need to be so that they can perform, um, at a high level, um, up to their standard as opposed to um, feeling and kind of using that fuel as, 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 as some of the stuff from the noise that they hear. Do you not prefabricate that, the, not, the artificial noise? Um, yeah. And be, I, you I, know, I, like on a CD or, okay, I'm showing my age a little bit, uh, you know, like on an MP3 file and, and to, to, to be, instead of using music as the motivational tool, which a lot mm-hmm. of athletes will do, uh, and I was no different, could the, that athlete not use that technology Certainly. to have crowd noise that they listen to beforehand or what, or whatever, what's going to get them, you know, the, the juices flowing. Certainly. And that's, that's pregame. They certainly can. And we often talk about, um, you know, uh, creating a, a playlist, um, whether it's, you know, music that can get them pumped up, but also music that can slow them down. Now, you can also also incorporate maybe some crowd noise, but, um, and that's, I think that's also kind of a caveat that's helping with, you know, some of these sports is, is maybe pumping in some of that sound, um, whether it may be, um, you know, their walk-up songs for, for a, a baseball player that's coming up to the plate in between innings to try and normalize what they're used to hearing, um, some of the stimulus that they're used to hearing. But looking at that, um, yeah, you know, when they get out there, though, and when there is that kind of they look around and they see that there's no one there, they see that void, um, you know, how are they able to kind of hone it back into where they need to be and to say, hey, you know, it's the same thing we've always played throughout. Let's go out there and execute the way that we know how, um, as opposed to, um, you know, kind of giving life to a, to a stimuli that's not there um, and, and saying this is weird and later mind wander. But, you know, to go back to that question, too. I think also for, you know, some young players who might be coming up as well could be used as an advantage um, because they don't become quote unquote starstruck. Uh, they don't become, um, you know, in a way um, enamored by the crowd, the noise, um, who they're going against. And they kind of go about just doing their business and doing what they know how to know what to do. That's earned them a spot to be there um, as opposed to um, drawing off of, you know, I'm, playing in Yankee stadium with 45,000 people. I'm playing for the Red Sox and they, you know, it's a big moment and they're booing me or they're, you know, they're against me. And, and having that kind of weigh in, um, I'm able to block that out easy because that's not a factor anymore. Um, you know, or that isn't a factor 
that I don't have to experience at this moment. So, um, you know, I think it's, there's, there's a multitude of, of kind of situations and scenarios that play here, but, you know, I think it's different from, for, for all kinds of guys, um, whether it's your rookie or your, you know, 12 year veteran or, you know, your, um, your, your, you know, baseball, I go back to baseball, but, uh, a major league baseball closer, for instance, who wants to be amped up, um, really kind of charged so that they come running in and they kind of, you know, are fueled by that noise or, you know, the sound of the song they have when they run out there. Um, and it's not there. And so how do they channel that energy from a different light as opposed to, um, you know, being worried, but this is, you know, this is different. I don't know if I can do what I do because it's not normal for me. It's not my normal routine. Do you think in that, in that basis, then Sean visualization is even more key for an athlete now then? Certainly. And I think, you know, with visualization in, in general, um, it, it's, it's can be you know really um, powerful, but I think it's, it's making the shift from, you know, uh, when you really want to enhance your visualization, you want to make sure that you're really kind of using all your senses. Uh, it's what you, we see um, in our eyes. It's what we hear. It's what we feel. Um, but really kind of incorporating the senses so that we really feel as if we're there. Um, and so uh, visualization of what we would have may have done last year, years before, and years past may be a little different now um, just because there is, the situations are different. Um, again, you're not going to be simulating uh, in your mind looking around and seeing a bunch of people in the stands. You might see cardboard cutouts, but um, that's not going to be there. Um, and so how do we visualize this new visualization script in our minds where we're kind of enhancing and we're seeing all the things that, that are there now as opposed to what was there maybe a year ago or two years ago. But yeah, visualization can be important because, um, you know, kind of as we talked about, you know, in the beginning, it gives us a sense of control because um, we're living a, a experience in our mind that we're seeing. And so it gives us a sense of us being there. Um, and so that when we do go through these moments, you know, we feel as if, Hey, we're, we're here. Um, we've been here before and let's focus on what we can control as opposed to um, the things that we can't control. Do you think it's also going a step further than that as well, Sean, um, with utilizing vers- that visualization alongside attention and emotional control? Because ultimately, yes, you want to have attention uh, in terms of execution with the play, be it swinging the bat, throwing a pitch, mm-hmm. and not having that stimulus of uh, the crowd enacting towards the umpire. Obviously, that's yeah. an emotional att- attachment. So, is it very much a case of being kind of laser focused in one sense, having blinkers on as well, and then taking some of the emotion out of what was the case normality to a year ago, two years ago? Yeah, and, and, and it really is kind of adjusting to the times, but also. You know, we always want to kind of have a little bit of that focus internally as well um, on that internal focus as opposed to external. Um, and, and so it's making sure that's still the focal point, but also not, not, not gravitating towards, you know, the, the situation. But yeah, I mean, I think even looking at umpires, um, you know, are they influenced by lack of noise? Maybe they would have, you know, called a strike or a ball differently if, you know, if they had a crowd to react to say, Hey, that's a bad call as opposed to they're not hearing that anymore. Um, you know, cause it's a, it can be subjective back there. Um, 
we talked about the NFL. We talked about college football as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, is there going to be fl- as many flags on you know certain plays um, because you're going to have a reaction that's not there anymore um, based on crowd noise? Well, I think I think people need to take a perspective as well, and, and I think and I'll give this some context because I talked to, to a head official uh, William Winter basketball a couple of years ago. It's like, well, do you make a bad pass? Do you take a bad shot? We make mistakes too. I was like, okay, sure. you're, you're human. And I think that element of obviously the players themselves, if they were reflective and took a step back, would have a little bit more empathy towards an official uh, than maybe a fan, uh, ultimate coach. Sometimes uh, yes, yeah, sometimes no, because ultimately their job's online. But I think where I'm going to come with this, Sean, uh, I read somebody shared on LinkedIn, I think a couple of days ago, this was the season they were going to put in, obviously, robot umpires into the MLB. So whether or not, I don't know why they couldn't, because ultimately this is your chance to experiment a little bit more because we're in a time of uncertainty anyway. What's the worst that can happen? It might get it better. It might get it worse. And then you know for sure, well, we can either dispel this myth of uh, a robot technology is better than a human being. Or it's not. Yeah, you know, I, they, they, I know I've, I heard them talk about. It. I know they've done it in the minor leagues a little bit, but I think, I think players, uh, I think if you ask a player, a lot of times they're going to say they'd rather have an umpire back there, regardless. And as you mentioned, um, we're all human, you know, and, and and that we're not robots, and so there will be errors, there will be mistakes that are that are had, um, and so you know, I think. With that being said, I think, uh, you know, what umpires strive to do is just try and be as consistent as possible. Um, they're not going to be perfect as the same way that, a, you know, an athlete's not going to be perfect. They're going to make a mistake. But, um, you know, I think incorporating, uh, robot umpires could be something too where, you know, umpires, you know, umpires union, um, may not look too, too highly on that saying, Hey, um, just for this one year, we're going to do robot umpires. We're going to go back to you guys next year. And, um, and with that being said, um, you know, they, they haven't, they're not getting paid, uh, to, to have a replacement umpire as a robot. Um, so they're out of a job for a year. Um, so are they going to be more prone to come back? And, and if it doesn't work, um, I mean, you, you can look at the NFL, um, for instance, uh, a few years back with having replacement reps. And, um, you know, that didn't work out so well as far as, um, you know, they, they made, made a lot of mistakes. Um, so they weren't on the same level as a professional umpire was. So, uh, if you do have umpires that are, you know, upset about that and upset about using a, a robot umpire, um, you know, how well are the next guys that are going to step in if you do go back to the old, the old system? So, um, yeah, I think a lot of questions we had, um, with that being said, I know, the game's adjusted in certain ways um, to try and prevent injuries. Um, where, whereas, you know, um, extra innings are, 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 are now they have a guy on second base, which is, you know, something that's obviously a little bit different from, from the past. Um, they're having double headers now with seven innings instead of going to four nine to try and protect some arms. Um, so pitchers aren't getting hurt, but uh, you know, and then um, the DH is universal. So dozen hitters across the board in the American international league which is obviously something that's never been done. Uh, and so, um, yeah, we'll see what they're doing, but they're saying that's all on a trial basis. And the, the players association has agreed to that. Um, but, you know, more because of the health of the players, as opposed to 
trying to um, incorporate you know some new uh, uh, a new technology, a new a new system in order to play the game where it may uh, change the integrity of, of what we see in the game and, and for the good or the bad. Um, but you know I don't think they've really gone to that yet. I think what the changes they've made have more and more um, based on player health um, as opposed to trying to enhance the game in a certain way. Do you think there's a place for technology? And um, be it what I'm going to use as an example, you know, like crowd interference of, you know, it's, uh, yeah, be it, it's happened more in the playoffs than the regular season when it's obviously changed the tie as a series. Do you think for the MLB more specifically, because obviously every other North American sport has some sort of television, uh, teleprompter to yeah. either overturn a decision in one way? Do you think that would maybe be a good case in point? It's like, well, if it wasn't for this, okay, this 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 fan is not is not actually an issue now, but if that was to come up and the fan has taken away the ball, and the outfielder would have caught it, obviously that changes a yeah. decision massively. Or be it the other example, you know, you know, like borderline, is it a foul or is it a home run? Yeah, looking at the camera and saying, well. No, it's yeah. it's a it's a foul ball, and being able to look at the trajectory of the ball specifically, like using golf as as probably the one for like a driving driving off the tee, and being able to look at where oh, this ball was going out, even, out out play versus obviously in play, and even tennis too, right? Tennis does that to an extent too. With with was it in, was it out? But yeah, I think there's there's definitely some good with some technological advances with replay and, and being able to use the, the resources um, that are had. I think, um, you know, I, I, from what I've uh, been able to gather now is, is that major league baseball, uh, they don't look at the home team's um, video feed anymore where they have in the past. It goes to New York um, and then New York has their own feed where they can kind of look at whatever replays they see in order to um, New York being the headquarters for baseball. Um, and so that they can, you know, kind of make a, a ruling based on what they see as opposed to only having a select, uh, feeds at, at their disposal. Um, now, you know, and I've thought about this and then, you know, this is just kind of, I haven't thought too, too deep, but, you know, some of the crowd noise too, um, I'd be really curious to see how that goes down the line in the future. Um, you know, are they going to pump in, are stadiums going to pump in artificial crowd noise when fans do come back? And so um, to make it louder in certain moments, are they going to be allowed to do that? Um, you know, because now, I mean, with, with what they're doing now, they're going to be able to kind of perfect this in a way where um, without fans, they're going to be able to have, say, hey, you know, we know how to do this and recreate a situation that makes it sound as if they're there. Well, what happens when they come back and all of a sudden you want it to get louder? Are you going to start pumping in crowd noise? And you know, you've heard it a little bit in the NFL where, where guys have said, oh, you know, there's some stadiums we go and play that, um, it certainly, uh, it sounds as if, uh, some artificial noise there. So, um, it'll be interesting to see if they, if they allow that or if they, uh, regulate that too. Does that, does, does that, in your, in your experience, Sean, does it have an impact on the professional player that, that actual manipulation of the environment? Of I think the, it depends on the, I think it depends on the player. I think it depends on the situation. I think it depends on the environment, um, as well. Um, I think a lot of times guys will just see it as white noise or hear it as white noise. Um, you know, it's just because it's just so much um, that they just can't even 
decipher what's being said or what's being heard. I think sometimes, obviously, with noise, when it goes above and beyond, um, you know, it can be something that we can kind of, you know, um, it's a natural reaction to kind of see what's, what's going on. Um, so what moments does it get louder? What moments does it, you know, decrease? You know, is it something where there's a, there's a team that's on, you know, on offense, that's the opposing team, that's a visiting team, but all of a sudden they pump a lot of noise out there. So you can't hear, um, as a football player. And then, you know, when it's the opposite team, there's no noise when it's the home team, there's, and you can hear everything that's being said, you know, is that fair? For for an athlete, is that fair for someone to have to go through it? Um, well, is, like, that, is, that a, is that a fair environment? But it's like you said, it's how you adjust. Okay, the okay, the Patriots don't have that advantage as much anymore with Brady uh, yeah. moving on. But that's <laughs> an organization I think that has adapted to every turn. It would always look, well, this dynasty is finished. Oh, they're still here. They're still relevant. I think they'd probably still be relevant anyway because it comes down, it comes down to the top man himself, Bill Belichick. It's, it's, he is the coach. He runs it like a, a well-oiled machine. And it doesn't matter who's at the helm. We'll wait and see what happens with Cam Newton and see whether or not they do well or will not. Uh, obviously, Tampa will pick up. Bay will probably be all right as well uh, with Brady at the helm, and obviously he's got a point point to prove that I shouldn't be I shouldn't have been uh, cut from the Patriots. Yeah, you know, and, and it's interesting because I think they've done such a good job of adapting and adjusting throughout the years, and and they've definitely kind of walked that fine line of you know is this against the rules or is this not? Um, they've gotten away with a lot of things. Um, they've gotten in trouble for a lot of things. But, you know, what they've always done is, is not states, you know, uh, stagnant with, with their development, with what they're doing. They've always been able to try and do something for the betterment of their team. And I think that that kind of philosophy, that mindset for an organization is why they've remained the dynasty that they've been. I mean, obviously, having a guy like Brady is something that, you know, has been extremely beneficial for them. Um, but, you know, you do have... Um, a guy like Belichick who's, you know, kind of steering the ship saying, here's where we need to get a little better and here's the adjustments we should make. And, you know, if if this is within the rules, let's do it. Or if this is still kind of teetering, let's still try it because, you know, um, we could certainly get an uh, enhancement through that. Um, so also looking at that, I think it's it's something that, um, you know, I, I mean, uh, while Brady's a tremendous player, you know, you can look back on some of the teams he's had too. Um, you could say they lost some some key pieces, but they haven't necessarily missed a beat. Guys have developed. Um, you know, they've got good replacement guys in place where they've said, "Hey, look, you know, we're going to get someone else, you know, to fill that void." And it, it, you know, you're not going to you know miss a beat because we've done our homework, we've done our scouting, and, and we believe that you know they're going to be just as good um, as the player that was there previously. Do you think that's a mindset of, and you talked about fear uh, previously in the episode. Do you think, and I can't remember what the the acronym when it's positive, um, mm-hmm. but you know where I'm coming from with this. Yep. Do you think that's a mindset of people viewing fear as bad versus necessary fear being good? I think it's comforting in a way where they know if they go into an environment like that from an opposing, from another team, that they know that the Patriots understand 
how to develop you as a player. They're, they're going to do what's best for their your best interest. But also, um, you, you, you know, you don't second guess um, a team like that that's been able to kind of stay relevant for the last 20 years because they know what they're doing. And so, um, you know, you're not playing with your own emotions, playing with your own mind, second guessing yourself, your decisions um, based on that because, you know, you, you kind of say, hey, look, I'm going to put my trust in, in this organization. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it, it's, it's both ways. You got to get the right pieces in place though, too. And so, um, you know, there's, there's been some, some big names that have gone there and, and been cut, um, been let go, um, that didn't, didn't work out. And whether it was just, you know, um, the twilight of their career, maybe it was an ego, maybe they didn't buy into the system, who knows? Um, but you know, I, the, the one thing that I could say with the Patriots, they've done tremendously well for the last 20 years is, They've been real. They've been honest, and and they've been able to to get guys in place. And then they feel like they don't have a good fit. They've been able to cut the bait, but they've also been able to see, hey, look, this guy could potentially fit into our system, fit into our scheme. Let's uh, let's let let's develop him, as opposed to let's you know let him go because he's not um, the player that was here in the past. And you know, I think there's there's no better example than probably a guy like Tom Brady who was a six round pick. They put some trust in him saying, Hey, they saw something in, in him, especially because he was a, a co-starter at Michigan. Um, he didn't even start, um, you know, every game his senior year. Um, and so, you know, they viewed him as a project, but they saw something in his ability that maybe he could fit in, in the system and ultimately got an opportunity. But when that opportunity came, um, you know, he was able to thrive. And I think part of it was because of his work ethic, his desire to kind of prove people wrong. I think the other part of it was probably because they probably developed him in the right way so that when, you know, faced with that challenge, um, you know, he was kind of ready to go as opposed to being wrapped up in the things he can't control. So um, a guy like Cam, you know, Cam's a, a stud himself. And then so I think, you know, they've done their homework on him as, as far as, you know, who he is as an athlete. Um, you know, and I think if he's healthy, he could do a lot of, you know, good things for that team. But, um you know, I think some of the guys they have that they're developing in the wings uh, could be pretty good too. And I think you've seen that in some, some examples of some guys that have gone through as, as Brady's backups in a Matt Castle, for instance, um, who, you know, played very sparingly at USC. Um, uh, a guy like uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, um, you know, he went to a small school uh, who ultimately was traded for a first round pick. And, you know, he's had some success with the 49ers. It's not a big contract, but um, I think, their scouting is, is, is second to none um, to a lot of teams um, in the NFL. But I think a lot of it's based on, um, you know, how they're able to kind of see people, but also, you know, see how they fit in certain spots for that team and organization. And my penultimate question to you, uh, Sean, is if you had to sit down with any athlete or for that matter, coach dead or alive, who would that be and why? It's interesting. It's a really interesting conversation because it goes back to kind of my youth as, as, as who are athletes that I kind of, you know, I've always kind of uh, been enamored by. Um, but probably, you know, having a, a candid, honest conversation with, man, um, I, I, I might go with someone like a Tiger Woods. Um, and, you know, he's, he's living right now. But, you know, thinking about, the way he grew up 
um, you know, at a young age um, and kind of being a phenom, having expectations, um, but also developing in a way that his father, um, from everything I've gathered, uh, didn't uh, put him in situations to to fail. Um, you know, put him in some golf tournaments where he was able to go out there and win. Um, you know, as a 10 year old, he wasn't playing against 16, 17 year olds in competition. Um, he was, you know, staying within his age group, but also, um, you know, some of the trials and tribulations for him through having success, um, his mentality, um, you know, his desire to go out there and, and, and hunger to, to execute. So I think there's a lot to it, um, for a guy like Tiger that I'd love to have a, an open and honest, you know, candid conversation, um, just about just his development, but all on top of that. Um, you know, what, what makes him tick his mentality. Um, I think you can look at a guy that's, you know, like a Muhammad Ali, for instance, who's dealt with a lot of things throughout his life, a lot of decisions that, you know, um, and, and being confident in making his decisions, but also, you know, hearing his voice in his, you know, competition of boxing, um, not just as a, you know, as an athlete, but as a, as a person, you know, um, and be an activist and, and, and creating some change. But I think looking at all that, um, you know, what's going on in his mind while he's doing that, um, you know, throughout. Um, a guy I always grew up like him was a guy, you know, Michael Jordan. And so I was always kind of, you know, curious about, you know, what made him tick? How did he always thrive? You know, how did it always seem like he had that game-winning shot? But what was his mentality to develop that hunger, that desire, but that confidence so that when he had the ball in his hands, um, he was ready to go as opposed to um, being fearful of that. And I think, you know, we've seen a lot of kind of, you know, behind the scenes with this Last Dance documentary um, where we've been able to see, you know, kind of the inner makings of a Michael Jordan, um, you know, what drove him as a competitor, but <clears throat> also why he was never satisfied um, and, and, and how he would find every little thing to kind of develop a quote-unquote chip on his shoulder. Um, and so that was kind of what fueled his fire as opposed to saying, I've won this championship. I've, you know, top athlete in the world. I've made X amount of money. I don't need to work out. I don't need to do all the things that, um, make me great. And it was, it was, I'm not going to let someone catch me was kind of, you know, the way that he, he would go about doing his thing. And, and he was always felt like he could find a slight somewhere, but that slight drove him. So, um, I, I didn't fairly answer your question as far as one athlete, but um, those are three in itself that would be very interesting to to have some conversations with for sure. And our final question to before we wrap up the episode, if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? I, I think how we can create awareness to certain situations um, so that we can normalize it in a way that no matter what happens, we can take something away from it. So how do we adjust? How do we adapt? Um, so that next time, good or bad, whatever that situation may be, um, you know, we're able to, to have some growth. Um, I always, you know, tell a lot of my clients that it's only a mistake if we don't learn from it. So if, if we're not dwelling on outcomes and we're really focused on our process and we're looking at a situation, um, and, and we're really taking away, you know, what, what we do differently next time or what we would do, you know, the same, um, you know, we're, we're, we're getting better. We're, we're seeing growth by experience. And so I, I think it's important to kind of look at every situation as, 
as a situation. Um, but the more that we can kind of move forward based on, you know, what's happening and, and, and become better, um, then, you know, a lot of times when we, you know, maybe had a negative moment, it's not really a mistake, but it's something that we can grow from. And I think going back to what we talked about, I think um, if you look at a lot of top athletes, you know, throughout um, professional sport, um, they've had moments of, of maybe failure, moments where someone told them no. Um, but looking at that, I know I'm giving you a long-winded answer, um, so it's more than one sentence, but we're kind of looking at that. Um, that's what drove them was learning from those situations, adapting. Um, and so how can you do that in your everyday life where I'm taking a situation that may be, um, you know, negative or, or maybe not what, what I wanted to have happen or how I drew it up and saying, well, yes, that happened, but because that happened, it's going to make me better because I'm going to learn from it. And now when faced with a similar challenge, I know how to handle it based on past experience, past scenarios, so that, you know, when faced with this again, I have control um, because I know exactly what I'm going to do and I know how to defeat this as opposed to be fearful of it. So once again, Sean, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. James, appreciate it. It was, uh, it was a pleasure and uh, we, we could talk for a couple more hours for sure. So uh, certainly, uh, certainly enjoyed uh, you having me on and, uh, you know, look forward to uh, continuing our conversations in the future as well. I look forward to it. So once again, thanks for coming on. Thank you. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let me know what you thought of the episode by tagging me over on Instagram at James O Roberts 11. And I'll spell that out again. That's J A M E S the letter O R O B E R T S and the number 11. And again, you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And in addition, if you had any follow-up questions, don't hesitate to shoot them over as well. And finally, don't forget to check Sean out over on Twitter at squin23. So that's S-Q-U-I-N-N, the number 23. And also via the website www marwadconsultinggroup.com so that's m-o-a-w-a-d c-o-n s-u-t l-i-n-g group.com and as always don't forget to check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk and click on the tab resources but not forgetting, I've also started a new Facebook group, especially for the podcast, which you can find by typing in The Mindset Athlete. And last but not least, and uh, not forgetting, I've also rebranded my other Facebook group to AIM 24-7 Fat Burning Support Group. So come and check out the AIM Tribe. The links will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipson.com under the category Psychology. So once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast.